0: Well, if you'll turn with me uh, to Revelation chapter 5. If you were here this morning, we are in Revelation chapter 4, and now we're in chapter 5. Uh, and so we'll be uh, completing our walk through that, and I'll, I'll give a little intro before I, I preach. But hey, let's read this, and um, yeah, there's, I'm going to read the whole chapter, so why don't you stand? So we didn't have scripture reading, why don't you stand for the reading of God's word? <clears throat> chapter 5, Revelation. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. "...as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you are slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Lord, thank you for your word to us. We thank you for this this vision of heaven. We, We saw the first part of it this morning, and Lord, as we continue in it now, I just pray that you would, again, capture our hearts, enlarge our thinking, Give us a greater vision of who you are and and the realities of the spiritual spiritual authorities above us. We're being given a look into heaven, God, and I pray that this would uh, just remind us as we live our daily lives that you are king, you are sovereign. Though the world be in upheaval, you are the one who's in control. And Lord, your plan of redemption is moving forward. And we get a glimpse of the future, the sure future, God, that that would just, I just pray that that would, again, capture us, that would change how we think, and that we truly would think on heavenly things, the things that are above, so much so that they would infect how we live and what we, how we see people, the perspective we have each day all the time. Lord, make us better worshipers as your followers. And God, so I pray now as we walk through this, Lord, that we walk through your word, that, God, you would open our eyes, that you would, again, take your word to transform our thinking, to to renew our minds so that we can be people who think differently. And out of that would come lives that are different for your sake and your glory and our good. So we pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, uh, again, in, in Revelation chapter four, not everyone who's here now was here this morning, so let me just give you a, a brief recap of, of where we're at in Revelation. We're uh, in chapters four and five, and it's a turning point in the book, or this letter that, that John is his, he's been writing, because he was basically he was uh, captured by Jesus one day. He's on exile in this island of Patmos off the coast of Turkey. And he's, he's there, and it was the Lord's Day, it was a Sunday, and all of a sudden he, he's, uh, uh, he meets with Jesus, and we see that in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. And, and the Jesus he sees is not the Jesus we're used to seeing in our little children's storybook. This is the reigning king, and we're going to read that description here in a little bit. But he meets with Jesus, and Jesus tells John, hey, I want you to write down what you've just seen, this is from verse 19 of chapter 1, the things that are... And he means chapters 2 and 3 where Jesus gives a letter to the seven churches there in Asia Minor, Turkey today. And, And again, commending these churches for what they're doing right. Challenging them where they're sinning and telling them you need to change. And he who listens, obeys, and overcomes, I will reward. Okay? So he tells them write those things down. But then I want you to write the things down which are to come. That's like the outline of the whole book. And so from... Chapters 2 and 3, we have Jesus talking to the church, but then he switches gears, and then John is brought up to heaven. And he's going to be shown the things that are to come. But chapters 4 and 5 set the stage for chapters 6 through 19. And 6 through 19, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, it's going to get crazy here on earth. It's going to be a time of mass confusion, judgments of God being poured out on the earth and people are going to be running to and fro praying that the days would be shortened. It's going to be crazy. But chapters 4 and 5 tell us in heaven it's not crazy. In heaven the ruler is established and this is all part of his sovereign plan. And so uh, as we look into this book we have to understand that we're being a glimpse of, of what's going to happen in the future. This hasn't happened yet because Four and five happens in here, but chapter six, right after this, is where the seals start to be broken. And the the four writers of the apocalypse in chapter six are unleashed on the earth. So this hasn't happened yet. But this scene in heaven is real. John is taken there in the spirit by Jesus himself. So this isn't some book we're writing, you know, I've seen heaven or 90 minutes or whatever it is. All those different books that are out there. This is the true picture of heaven. And the focus is not John's experience of it. What is the focus of we, we heard this morning in chapter 4? What's the focus? Christ. It's on Christ. Well, actually, it was not Christ this morning. It was God the Father. Chapter 5 is about Christ, the one who was slain, the Lamb of God. So we will see that today. But again, the focus is when John describes what's happening, he's not saying, oh, and I felt this, and this is what happened to me. He's describing what he's seeing because he's so overwhelmed. I mean, he's seeing heaven, and, and all he can think of are words that are to the extreme. You know, when he says, it was like this stone or that stone, he's, he's picking the stones that are most brilliant, bright stones, precious stones. And he's talking, again, he's, it's just, it overwhelms him. And, and again, the reason I wanted to go into these passages is, if you've been here you know, listening to Pastor Lance over the last few months, and especially recently we've been talking a lot about how God wants us to think. God is after our mind. Consider, you hear that word in scripture ever? Consider, count yourself, right? Think on these things. God's after our thinking because from our thinking flows our decisions, our lives. And so this is one of these passage or one of these passages when I was thinking how can I become a more heavenly minded person truly a citizen of heaven while I live on this earth because when I like I said this morning when I wake up when that alarm goes off if it goes off or if I'm up sooner before that my my first thought is not oh I can't wait to meet with Jesus the reigning king it's not my first thought and now I have the discipline where I go to that but I need to have that because my first thought is not that I'm an earthly creature of you struggle with that Right, we're, I said we're not heavenly minded; we're earthly distracted. Right, and so this, these are passages. When I was thinking about getting this opportunity to preach, where I wanted to take you along with me, because these passages help me think differently, help capture my mind. You know, we, there's the passage that say, "Take your thoughts captive" when you're struggling with arguments against God. But I want us to take our thoughts captive and help us train ourselves to think more about God. And one of the suggestions I have, and we'll do that at the end if we have time, is to get, get in those psalms. Like we just sang some great songs. I'm going to read one of them. I love one of the songs you picked. I loved them all. But songs have a, a, a special way, uh, because of the music, of, of grabbing our affections. Do you know what I'm talking about? That inner part of you where you're drawn towards something. And, and that's why we sing. Because it, does, it doesn't just grab our thinking. It grabs our affections. But words are important, are they not? Words are so important I mean and I love the the songs that are chosen here when we sing because there's a lot of bad songs out there. I mean they treat God like a girlfriend almost. It's all about how I feel. Now, if we look at the songs in scripture, so much of it is focusing on the goodness and greatness and grandeur of God and what he's done and so again, this is to this is why I wanted to go here to, uh, this morning and tonight. So let's start looking here at Revelation chapter 5. So chapter 4 was all about praising the sovereign God. He's the focus of chapter 4. But chapter 5, we're now switching over to praising the Redeemer. We're going from the sovereign to the slain one. From from rejoicing in in the sovereign king and looking now at Christ in in the bringer of redemption. And and the reason we, we need to go there is when we are trying to inform our praise instead of thanking him for that new car we just got or that job promotion, which are not bad things, but they're not the greatest things, are they? When we look at heaven's worship, it's always on who God is and what he's done through Jesus Christ. Those are the two main focuses of this great scene in heaven. And I, and I want to challenge us to think more about these things as we go through our days. I want us to have our minds renewed, to have our, our hearts captured, to transform our thinking. So, first of all, let's look at verses 1 through 4. I call verses 1 through 4 the crisis, all right? Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So, again, we're still in heaven. We're still before the throne. Remember, the throne is the central motif in verses, or in chapters four and five: the, the throne: Majesty, power, rule, authority. It's a fixed throne. The sovereign one is there. But now we have something going on. Now instead of describing what the throne looks like with the peals of thunder and the lightning and, and the thrones that are around it, now we have the, the sovereign one seated on the throne, and he has something in his hand, this scroll. And this scroll means something. He's holding this scroll. That means he owns it. And, and some people say this scroll is representative of the title deed to the earth. Who's going to be, be able to take the title deed to the earth? I, I don't necessarily know if that is the case. But we do know back in, that, in those days that that is how you did contracts. You would have contracts and you would seal them with, with seals. And the only person allowed to open a contract was somebody who had the authority to do it, the one who was given the right. And that is the scene of what's happening here. It's a scroll that's written on the front and on the back, on the inside. And it was rare, we have to understand, it was rare for a scroll to have writing on both sides. So this, that means that it's a very comprehensive scroll with comprehensive plans. And I would say that it's probably a better way of saying it's, it's God's unfolding plan of the completion of redemption. Because that's what's just about to happen in chapter 6 through 19. Each seal does what? Unleashes another part of God's wrath on earth to complete his redemption. We also see one like this in Ezekiel chapter 2 uh, verses 8 through, uh, through chapter 3 verse 2. The writing on both sides symbolizes its completeness as it comes from God. The prophet can't add anything to it. It's God's plan for human history. The role in Revelation, this passage here, has seven seals. In the ancient world, legal documents had multiple seals. In Roman Asia, during this time, testaments were sealed with the seals of seven witnesses, in whose presence they were unsealed after the testator's death. Here, the lamb that has been slain but is alive opens the seals of the scroll that promises God's consummation of his kingdom. Just interesting. He has a scroll, but it's an important scroll, okay? And then there's a strong angel, all right? And this is one of the... A strong angel means it's not just an angel. It's a strong angel. And this may be one of the archangels, Michael or Gabriel, we don't know. But he says with a loud voice, Who is worthy? So there's a crisis. Who's worthy to to open up this scroll, And then what happens if if you look at the scene? What happens here? There's silence. No one steps up. No one steps up. Who is worthy? Who's the one that has right to take this scroll? To come to the, the one sitting on the throne to take it from him? And what is John's response? He's not crying. He's sobbing. It's the same word that was used of Jesus when he, on the day of the mount, you know, when he was coming over the triumphal entry, when it says when he crested the Mount of Olives and then could see Jerusalem before he started descending towards it, it said that he wept. It wasn't weeping. The word means to shake as you're crying. That means he was sobbing. John here, same thing. John knows that, that the, the, the creation... That was talked about in chapter 4. Where they're praising the creator. Creation is under a curse. Is it not? God's plan of redemption is not done. The redeemer has died and risen. But the plan is not consummated yet. There's a curse. And he's saying no one can open the scroll. So he's sobbing. I mean from Adam and Eve. Watching their first son die. That was the first effects they got to see. In real time of their sin. All the way to the death of an infant, to the death of of an older saint, all the way to this point. Death reigns. He's sobbing. No one's here to carry out God's plan. Creation lays under a curse and it needs to be lifted. There's a crisis in heaven at this point. even says creation groans. It can't wait for the unveiling of the sons of God. When Christ comes back and and sets things straight, creation longs for that day because it's under the curse of sin. There's a crisis and John sees the lack of somebody to step up and take that scroll. But that's not the end of the story, is it? That is where we go in verses uh, 5 through 7, I call it the conqueror. So from the crisis to the conqueror. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, what does that mean? Pay attention. This is for emphasis. Look, look here. Listen up. Check it out. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he took, or and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So first of all, John is told to, hey, calm down. Don't worry about it. God's got a solution, right? One of the others said to me, weep no more. Behold, here comes the conqueror. He's got the credentials. First of all, who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Where does that come from? Well, Genesis 49, 9 through 10, in the middle of of Jacob, before he's dying, at the end of Genesis, he's getting ready to die, and he starts blessing each one of his sons, the 12 sons, that are going to be the 12 tribes. He says, here's verses 9 through 10, he says, Judah, talking to his son Judah, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Now here's the part that gets messianic. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. What is a scepter? It's what a king would hold as a symbol of his rule. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. That means the ruler is going to come from Judah. And we get more information later in 2 Samuel from that descendant from the tribe of Judah. Judah. He was the second king. David. Good job. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. It doesn't say the obedience of the Jews, of the peoples. It means he will be the international ruler. So he's, from the, he's the lion from the tribe of Judah. He's from the right line. He's got that credential. He's the root of David. And that comes from Isaiah 11, 1 through 4. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Remember it says here in, in verse 6 of Revelation chapter 5, it says he has, uh, he has seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That's the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah it says that's the spirit that's going to rest on him. It's describing the same thing. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge but by, by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked oh, oh, oh. That's the root That's the root that's this, and he's a descendant of David. And what do we have in Matthew and Luke? We have two genealogies. And what does it prove? That both from his mother, he was from the line of David, and from his adopted father, he's from the legal line of David. This is the man. He's the, he's the same one talked about in Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was uh, unimpressive at his beginning, but he was the root. Romans fifteen twelve says this, and, and again Isaiah in chapter 11, verse 10, which we didn't read. Romans is, Paul's quoting this. The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles will hope. Well aren't we the fruit of that right now? He is the root of David. So we've got the the line of the tribe of Judah. That's the one who's coming to take this scroll. We've got the 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 root from David, the specific Messiah. And and he he goes he goes on to say, he goes on to say he has conquered so that he can open the scroll with its seven seals, conquering. So when he finally comes, in verse, I think it's 6, what, what does he actually come? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. What did he see between the throne amongst the creatures? What was actually standing there? Look at your Bible. A lamb. What? A lamb is a conqueror? Okay, think like Jews. Why do you think they missed Jesus in the, fir- the first time? What were they expecting? They are expecting a powerful, mighty king, right? They expected a conqueror. Since when is a lamb a conqueror? Well, Isaiah 53 gives us a taste of what, why he came as a lamb the first time. If you ever want to talk to somebody who is from a Jewish background and they want to know about this Jesus, don't take him to the New Testament. You take him to the first gospel. You know where that is? Isaiah 53. That is the best description of the gospel, it's more comprehensive in Isaiah 53 than any one passage in the in the Gospels. Did you know that? I mean, when you walk through, it actually starts in Isaiah 52:12 all the way to the end of 53. That is the gospel. When you just start walking through it line by line, it's amazing. But He is the one. He is the one who is conquered. He's the risen and reigning Son. And I'm going to read to you about this conquering, this Lamb. Okay, uh, If you turn in your Bibles to Revelations chapter 1, go backwards a few, a few chapters, and we'll start in verse 9. Let's look at this, this lamb. <laughs> verse 9, I, John, your brother, the, he's the one who wrote this, this letter, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, On account of the word of God. He was exiled there because he was a Christian. On on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Okay, trumpets in in Hebrew scriptures always associated with the coming or the heralding of God. And oftentimes with the great coming of God on the day of the Lord. So like a trumpet. Whoa. "...saying, write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow." I died, and behold, I am alive evermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That's, that's quite the picture of Jesus, isn't it? What was his voice like? Roaring waters. How many of you have ever been whitewater rafting? Okay, it's, it can be loud and scary when it's at full force. You know, level five rapids you don't go through. I've been through level three, and that was scary enough. He's got a face that's shining brighter than the sun. Well, how many of you have stared at sun, the sun ever? <laughs> I mean, this is a description of the Jesus that is now, the reigning Jesus. But you know what? He showed up in Scripture before he came to earth. If you turn to Daniel, I'll just read it, but Daniel 10, 5 through 9. This is Daniel, and he, he says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, "'A man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. "'His body was like beryl. "'His face was like the appearance of lightning. "'His eyes like flaming torches. "'His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. "'And the sound of his waters like the sound of a multitude. "'And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, "'for the men who were with me did not see the vision, "'but a great trembling fell upon them, "'and they fled to hide themselves.' So I was left alone and saw this great vision and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I res- retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. As I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. What did Peter, James, and John do when Jesus was transfigured before them? <laughs> fell on their face. But Jesus, when we see Jesus... Again, we have to, again, children's Bibles are fantastic. Children's Sunday school is great. But the picture that, of Jesus and the Gospels in those books are not the way Jesus is now. Jesus is the reigning, radiant, brilliant, bright, sovereign, slain lamb who's risen and glorified. And he's going to return one day. And he's not coming uh, in gentleness, in humiliation. He's coming to conquer because he is the conqueror. So, this lamb, he's the central figure. He's the star. The slain lamb amongst, he's in the midst of the throne. He's near the throne. He's, he's the center of the, of the story now. This unusual picture, again, picture is, is not what we'd expect from a conqueror, is it? It's a lamb. But the lamb was so important in Jewish, the Jewish sacrificial system. Why don't you turn to Exodus 12? Again, there's so much imagery here, we have to go to the Old Testament. Because that's where all this imagery is coming from. So he's called the Lamb. Let's look, to, uh, look at Exodus 12. We'll read verses 1 through 6. Exodus 12, 1 through 6. And what time period in, in, in redemptive history is this? If you're a visitor, I like asking questions. Uh, it's what did you say? Yeah, right before the Passover. Right before there, the Exodus out of Israel. He's giving directions now of how to do the Passover because that's going to be the turning point, isn't it? So listen to this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. This will be so significant. This is the new year for you. And you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. How long do you keep the lamb? Four days. It's a small lamb. This is not the word, the typical word for lamb. This means young lamb, baby lamb. It was brought into the house for four days. If you have children, what do they do with this lamb? They name the pet, becomes very dear. And then what do you do on the 14th day? After four days, you slaughter it. Well, why, would they, why would God do that? How mean is that? What does he teach them? Sin costs. Sin is personal. Sin, to the, pay, the price of sin is very, very dear. Very near to us. But that's what he had them do. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And what did, they take with, what did they do with the blood? They put it on their doorway. Yeah, the top and the two sides. And they had to stay in the house. They had to hide under the blood so that the angel of death would pass over. Right? This is, this is, and what is the first thing John the Baptist, I'm jumping back to the New Testament, moving forward 1,400 years, what is the first thing John the Baptist says when he sees his cousin publicly? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this conqueror was a conqueror because he came not to fight armies. What did he come to fight? He came to conquer sin and death. Satan's power is crushed. His presence is still here, but one day it won't be. Sin is still here, but its reign over us is not, for a Christian, he does not reign over us, right? Sin is tempting, it's powerful, but it does not have reign as in we have to obey it. That's not true for a Christian because of what the lamb did, the one who was slain. So it says there, a lamb who had been slain, he had the markings on him. When Jesus rose from the dead, what did he show Thomas? Hey, here's the markings. Touch. You can go ahead and touch. The, lamb, the risen Jesus will have those marks. Why? So for all eternity, it'll be a reminder of what? Of the greatness. The grace, compassion, and mercy of God. So here's this lamb. This lamb that was in, in again, it's go to Isaiah 53, verse 7. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is the lamb. This is the lamb who has conquered. Jesus came first as the lamb of God to conquer the first and foremost enemy, sin and death. The crucified son won the victory. The conqueror is not who or what we expected, but it was part of God's sovereign plan. When did God decide to, accomplish, to carry out this plan? Before the foundation of the world. God's been in charge from before there was anything. He's been in charge. Nothing has taken him by surprise. This is our sovereign one. <clears throat> First Peter says this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. But with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. What? Oh, God's not loving. Uh, When did he decide to sacrifice his son? For the foundation of the world. For the sake of you, Peter says. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the lamb. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. He's the lamb who's been slain. He has seven horns, and horns were the, were the symbol of strength. And seven is the number of completeness. He has total strength. He's omnipotent. He has seven, seven eyes. These are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He's omniscient. He's full of the spirit. He's the slain one. He is completely everything we need. He is the one who has the credentials. And this Lamb, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This this conqueror comes up. He boldly approaches the throne. He's the only worthy one. As the God man has the authority, the power, and right to take the scroll from the Father, to approach the throne, he's been near the throne, he walks up to the throne, he has equal authority. He's given the scroll because he's worthy. Hey, this, has come, this sounds like Philippians 2, 6 through 10. Talking about Jesus says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not equal, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and confess what? He's the Lord. Lord. So that's the conqueror. There's a crisis, creation's under a curse. Someone needs to set this, set this straight. Someone needs to solve this problem. John sees no one stepping up, and yet the others say, no, there's somebody. And then the lamb steps up to the plate. And let's look, let's look what happens. This is the response of heaven when this happens. We see there's a chorus. I call this redemption song in verses 8 through 13. They're celebrating the slain son. They're rejoicing in their redeemer. Verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures. And let me remind you, these are not little, these paintings of these little fat things with wings that we think about on Valentine's Day. Folks, that is nothing like the angels of Scripture. These are mighty beings, terrifying creatures when you think about it. I mean, John, when he saw one of them, he almost fell down and worshiped. And the, and the angel says, Hey, don't worship me. I'm a creature, I'm a creature just like you. But yet, these terrifying creatures, what do they do when they are in the presence of God? They bow down and worship, but they also sing unceasingly. What do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When they see God, they can't stop worshiping. Now when they see the, the redeeming son, the slain son, what do they do? They start breaking out in song. The four living creatures and the 24 elders, that means there's 28 of them, fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp. Well, maybe a cello? Well, maybe not. The harp. Each holding a harp. And golden bowls, bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Again, the bowls in the temple were made for incense. And he's giving us the commentary, the incense that rises to God are the prayers of the saints. And we see that in Psalm 141 verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Something that smells good to God, the prayers of his people. It pleases him. We see that they sing, it says, they they sang a new song. And that's why I call this Heaven's New Song. Chapter 4 is Heaven's Song. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven's New Song is, wow, look at the Redeemer. Look at this Redeemer. They declare his worthiness because he's worthy to receive worship. Worthy are you to take the scroll. No one else in all the universe could do it except for you. To take the scroll and to open its seals. And they sing a song that celebrates his death, his redemption, his sanctification of a new priesthood, and his rewarding of his people. He says, for you were slain. You are worthy because you were the sacrifice. He says they, they, you're, that he, they were singing that he's worthy because he is the ransom. When they say, by your blood you ransomed people for God. He bought back. He was the ransom price. He was the propitiation from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. He's the only one who solved mankind's problem. Not one man alive in all of creation was able to die on our behalf. Because we all have what? Sin. We're not born innocent, folks. Thank you, Adam and Eve. We've inherited something, haven't we? According to Romans 4, Genesis 3, and history proves it. I've had two kids... And they're so beautiful when they're born. But you know what they proved really quick? They're little sinners like mommy and daddy. They're sweet, but they're sinners. And they need Jesus. But he's the one who ransomed people for God. He's worthy because of his universal redemption. When they say from every, you've purchased people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. He is not just the savior of the Jews. He's the savior of mankind. Jesus calls his followers, both Jews and Gentiles, from every possible place on the face of his earth so that his people are the church universal. We've all been equally purchased, white, black, whatever color we are, no what language we speak, where we live, we're equally purchased by the king, by his son, He's worthy because he has sanctified these people and appointed them to holy service. When they say, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. So he's taken. How many of you would call yourself, well, I'm a royal priest. I serve the king. Look at me. But you know what? That's what God has called you. He said you are. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's what he says about us. It's shocking for me to think about that, about me. But that's what he's done. He sanctified us. He set us aside as his holy people to serve him, to act as his priests. What did priests do in in ancient Israel? They would represent God to the people in administering the sacrificial system. And then they would bring the sacrificial blood to who? To God. And they would act as the representatives of the people to God. And that's what he says we are in the new covenant. Do you feel like that? doesn't matter what you feel like, it's what you are if you're a Christian. That's why we need his word to tell us this. And, what, and then the next step is, are you acting like it? Am I acting like it? Right? Don't, don't raise your hand. <laughs> that's the personal challenge time. You have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth so not only has he set us aside for service, but he's rewarding us. We get to rule with him. Huh. How many of you feel worthy of this? I hope you don't feel worthy because we're not. But he's done it anyways. So what does that tell us about our great God? He's compassionate. He's merciful. He's gracious. Folks, we're in heaven. We're seeing this in heaven. Again, picture what's going on here. Visualize. You don't have to have your eyes open and listen to this, but visualize what's going on. And now let's look what happens here. No longer is it just the 28 singers, the 24 elders and the four living creatures. Now some, some others join in. We now have a heavenly host, a myriad upon myriad, thousands upon thousands. The Jewish way of saying, you can't even count how many are now singing and praising the Lamb. <clears throat> And one of my favorite experiences is going to big conferences of men. Shepherds Conference every year where we have 3,000 men in one room singing hymns. Or have you ever been to like something like Promise Keepers? Any of you guys been to that? Just to hear just the, the singing. Where it's just so loud. You don't even need uh, instruments. It's so loud and strong. I mean, I, there's part of me, I just want to go out and fight. By the way, when the Jews went out to battle, who led the way? The singers, they went singing to battle. Oh, let's go. I'm sorry. We're back to this. But still, look it. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels. How many? Numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands and sang with a loud voice. And here's the deal. They have seven different expressions about this God. What does seven signify? completeness worthy is the lamb who was slain to do what to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing again i talked about this this morning some of this is the same as the song to god the father he's worthy of our power our energies on behalf of his reputation in his kingdom that's what it means to receive power he already has power but he's worthy of our efforts of our wealth, our finances. He's worthy. He, he deserves us to give to him of our finances, to expand his kingdom of wisdom. That's why it's so great to watch Christians write books, to think on the deep things of God, to write books, to help others. Like one of my favorite books is Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It makes me think better about the Lord. Or, or, or The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Those are two, some of the two most influential books on me. And there's other great books out there. But he's worthy of, of our efforts of bringing our wisdom and thought, Of might, of honor, of glory and blessing. We just keep going on. The Lamb is worthy of praise. In Revelations chapter 4, we have two songs of praise to God. In Revelations chapter 5, we have two songs of praise to the Lamb. But now we also have one song to them both. And that's what happens in verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and to the Lamb, God the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's heaven's new song. When I played soccer... Uh, our coach would just kill us. He was a mean, brutal man. Vicious. Didn't like him at all. I know I loved him. He's coach or, But he, in the middle of just, it's 95 degree weather in August, back in the 80s. It's ultra smoggy at Biola. We're you know, it's after practice, you'd have to take a cold shower just to open up your lungs again because we were panting. We couldn't open because of the smog. And he would say in the middle of this, you know, we're just dying and we're starting to get really ticked and crabby. And he says, hey, Brunzeal, have a song on your heart folks do you have a song on your heart when life gets tough do you have a song like this that reminds you of the great king who's in charge of your life see in here we have a a picture of what's just going to happen in these tremendously scary events world shaking shattering events God is still in control and, and they're singing, these, this song is going on in heaven. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. We know that from Isaiah 6. That's what the angels are doing now. Do you have a song on your heart of this magnitude that reminds you of the greatness of God when your world is being shattered? What is the joy of the Lord? Our strength? How often do you draw on Him for your strength? Do you have a picture like this of God that makes you want to worship Him? I love this because it just makes me stop and think. He is worthy. He demands worship because he is worth it. He has all right to it. He's our owner, our creator, and the lamb who gave it all for us. Amazing. And I call verse 14 the consequence. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. They praised him They physically prostrated themselves. They worshipped him. Despite the utter rebellion and disgusting, false antichrist that was to come and these crazy events that are just about to be unleashed on the earth, still there is powerful worship in heaven. The stage is set for a world of upheaval, but in heaven it's set and established. What are we commanded to do? To put our minds on what? To set our minds on what? The things above. Folks, I, I, I pray that this picture would help us set our minds on things above. Because if you haven't faced a, a major trial in your life, you're going to. Right? You guys all agree with me? You're just, you're just staring at me. You know that there's trials coming. That's just life. Until Jesus comes, it's not going to be perfect. But these are the kind of things that are supposed to help us set our minds on the things above. To be To be about something greater and bigger than ourselves. So, some of the consequences for us is true worship should lead to a renewed mind. And a renewed mind should, should help us have submitted hearts. Again, do the, what do the elders do? They fall before the king, they fall on their face, they're submitted, they're surrendered. And I'm going to tell you here's what should characterize you and me we should be singing. We should be singing. It's funny. I just had my daughter talk to me. The other, day, my son, he's in the navy. Called me up and we we're just talking. Goes, Dad, thank you for singing to me when I was young. And he started singing a song that I hadn't sung since he was like ten. But song that song impressed on his heart, and it got him through some tough times. It's funny. On his base, there's been four suicides in four months. It's just funny. Just that. It's just. It's just a dark place. But he has the joy of the Lord, He's in, and, and that was one of the things that he relied on. It was a song about the Lord. Do you have a song in your heart? And what is the song you're passing on? What is the song that I'm passing on? How am I shining for the Lord, right? Again, I said this this morning, and I say it again. I want to be so heavenly-minded that I can finally be an earthly good. I don't want to be devoted to the things of the earth. I don't want to be distracted by the earthly things. And again, I'm going to call you out. We're the church. Do you want to be that way too? May we be that church. This community, Thousand Oaks and Beyond, needs a church. Churches that are sold out. They don't need another church they can just go sit in, it's like all the rest. They need a church devoted to the Word of God, devoted to praising God, devoted to loving people, till so we can't stand it. Do you want to be that way? I do. Who knows how much longer we're going to be left on this earth I mean we you know we don't know the number of our days so let's let's take another step in that direction right you know when you're serving with the kiddos again I go back to the kiddos because there's such a, a tangible way to invest in the next generation we got to understand folks our kids are not Christians what they're in Christian homes yeah they're st- they need to be evangelized don't they parents we'll go like this our kids are not born Christian. Folks, we have at least, I don't know the number, 20 or 30 kids that need Jesus. And then we're going to have a lot for VBS. And again, I bring that up because that's always on my mind. But folks, whenever we're serving here, may we be a church that is, people are just all out. We don't care what people think. We just want to love Jesus and make sure they know how much, how important he is to us. Amen? Well, let, me, let me read you. We, we sang the song. But I I just, I love this because uh, this is one of those songs that helps me think differently. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Did you know that? That that's Jesus' main job right now? He's our advocate, our high priest, our intercessor. He pleads for us every day. And when he pleads a case, who wins? He does. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue could bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me declared not guilty innocent because of Jesus Christ behold him there the risen lamb my perfect spotless righteousness do you guys know second corinthians 5:21 he took he became sin on our behalf so that we might become counted righteous in him we're righteous now he is our righteousness Someone asks you, hey, when you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? I don't say a thing. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to point to Jesus. That's all we have. That's all we need. He is our perfect, spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am. The king of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, my, my, uh, with Christ, my Savior and my God. With Christ, my Savior and my God. So, folks, we went before the throne of God tonight and this morning, chapters 4 and 5. And uh, I pray that this would impact us and that it would, would help us see, have a greater vision of God. Because that changes us. It changes how we live. Amen?